here I am uh, ministering as a chaplain in the prison system. And this today is my first public pulpit ministry since moving to California. And so I'll, I'll try not to speak to you like inmates. I'll try to speak to you as non-inmates. It's, 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 I was just actually, the other day I was noticing um, there's an interesting dichotomy, even in the prison where I am. The, the one I was at in Boston wasn't like this, but at the penitentiary, it's much more gang-affiliated, gang-related. And I'm getting warm, so I might have to take off my coat at some point, so don't be offended if I do that. Um, the black guys were all on the left, and the white guys were all on the right. And the Hispanics were sort of all in the back and towards the middle. And I thought that was interesting, because what we don't want as Christians is to see those distinctions. So the next time I get out there, and that's something you guys can pray about, is, is, is about the gang mentality and that, that ministry, is that we learn how to become more integrated as a church. It's challenging when you preach to inmates, when you minister to inmates, because when they come in the chapel, they are one way a lot of times. Oh, it's good to see you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate the message. Thank you for bringing the word of God. It was a wonderful thing. Pardon me while I go and stab this jerk over here I don't like. And a few weeks ago, we had an issue in the chapel where I got a call that there might be a, uh, a beatdown happening in the chapel while we were having services. So thankfully, there were a couple of chaplains at work that day, and the other guy was preaching, and I was just, this is what I do during sermons. I roam the halls to make sure shivs are not coming out and that blood isn't being shed. Um, it's not necessarily always so dramatic. That just happened to be a particular day, but as Pastor uh, Brown mentioned that there was a death um, 11 years ago in June of 2008. Officer Jose Rivera was killed at that institution. Um, there have been 27 now, I think, correctional officer deaths uh, in the line of duty during the history of the Bureau of Prisons. So you, you come into the public ministry, and like you said, you know, some days it might feel like, you know, you're, you're ready for a battle or something, but it's it's a pleasure to be able to come and, and speak and not feel like i got to turn around and make sure nobody's behind me. Um, we do have to wear stab-resistant vests. Um, we're required to wear those there at the institution. Um, so that's just a little, uh, a little insight there. I'm going to be speaking from Matthew 25 this morning on waiting for God. And we'll talk about doing that as... as civilians who have not committed crimes and are not in prison, and we'll talk about that as also what it looks like in the prison system itself. Matthew 25, I'll read beginning at verse 31, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. I, I will look a little bit about the parables of the virgins and the talents, but we'll try to focus a little bit more on the last few verses. And I also have a phone here. I'm not texting, but I'm going to check my time a little bit. I'm not going to be too worried about time, but if I see anybody snoozing, I'll, uh, I'll pay attention to that. But I'm not allowed to have a phone in the prison either, so this is kind of weird to like, hey, I, got a f I feel like I'm in trouble, like someone's going to come and get me, or an inmate's going to come and snag it and try to make a call to put a hit out on somebody on the outside. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing after another sometimes. So Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. 
And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice that, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time, for your grace, and for the blessings you show to the church, not only in this place, but throughout all the world. Be pleased, Lord, to save sinners from all the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, that we would come together singing one song of praise into the presence, into your presence in your kingdom on that great day. Whether it be now in death as the soul departs to be with you or whether it be at your return, Lord, we look forward to that day when we will see you for who you are. So bless us now through the study of your word that it would impact and infiltrate our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. A lot of life is spent waiting or trying to avoid waiting. We don't necessarily like waiting. It, it, it depends on the perspective. Um, there's an old saying, good things come to those who wait. Some people think that's from the Bible. It's not. Kind of like God helps those who help themselves. That's not in Scripture. Um, whether or not people think what they're saying, think through what they're saying, considering about waiting, do good things come? Well, again, it depends on the perspective of the one who's waiting. What are you waiting for? Or to not in a sense of the preposition, for what are you waiting? Uh, if you're a Christian, ultimately you're waiting for Jesus, and that's a wonderful thing. If you're not a believer, the book of Hebrews says you have nothing to wait for but the fearful expectation of judgment, and that's a dangerous thing. That's a scary thing to consider. Waiting is a part of life, and, and again, you wait for good things. You have positive anticipation about a wedding, a birth, maybe a job interview, something you're really excited about, or as I thought about mentioned this morning, if you're a dog waiting for a mailman, you're really excited when you're waiting. You're waiting for something fun. Now, there's also the bad waiting, the negative side of waiting, where maybe you're not looking forward to a root canal or a visit to the DMV, or if you're the mailman who's waiting for the dog. There's the other side of waiting. But waiting is part of the process for Christians as we wait for the Lord to return 
and glory. As we wait for Jesus to come back, we're waiting. Uh, waiting is only half the battle. What are we doing with the time that we have while we're waiting? What are we, are we redeeming the time? Are we being smart with the time that God has given us? Are we being wise with the talents that God has given us? We talk about talents, we can talk about it in two ways. Talents in terms of the gifts or the skills that God has given you to serve him in his kingdom while you have breath. Whoever you are, wherever you are, no matter who you are or what you do, there is no gift too big or no gift too small that you can't be used in the kingdom of God. And so what are you doing with the talents that God has given you? And in the parable of the talents, it's finances, financials. Um, the Lord has given you things to do that maybe aren't to do with skills, but to do with finances. So what are you doing with what God has given you money-wise? Those are things that we have to think about while we're waiting. So we're waiting for God. That's the title of the sermon. And we might even think about it. Um, I thought about the sermon title. I, sometimes I like to get fun just because it helps draw people in. You know, I was thinking maybe an inconvenient Christianity or a convenient Christianity, and which one do you think is best, the convenient or the inconvenient? So in Matthew, here in, in 24 and 25, Jesus is speaking from the Mount of Olives. He's telling his disciples about the future, the coming of the kingdom of God. And uh, what I want to do is, again, I, I picked this text. Actually, uh, Pastor Jim kind of suggested it months ago, and I thought, well, it fits the theme of a missions conference, but it does speak to visiting those in prison. But Jesus gives us at least six opportunities to use our gifts and ways to serve him here on this earth, ways to be productive and fruitful and useful in the kingdom of God, not sort of sitting back in that lazy chair of the Christian life and with the remote flipping channels and just kind of watching the world go by, but being active, being productive, getting up off of that lazy chair and working, fighting, striving, struggling, uh, doing the work necessary, being productive while you're waiting. Inmates have that same challenge. They could just sit and they could grumble and moan and complain in prison. I didn't get a fair shake. The, the system was out to get me. The man was out to get me. The judge was too harsh in my sentence. So I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to be resentful because I'm here and I'm not going to try to do anything productive or positive with my time. And so what we try to do is encourage and challenge inmates to think about ways in which they can be useful and productive with their time, uh, whether it be from a religious perspective, whether it be from an educational perspective, whether we think about job training skills, things of that nature. How can we encourage them to use their time wisely? Are they going to keep doing stupid things? Are they going to keep trying to play games? Um, I heard recently that there was a theft in the chapel, so I went back to our uh, investigative team, and I, I saw a video and looked, and, and, and sure enough, we found an inmate uh, sneaking around on his belly on the floor of the, of the chapel, getting into a door that he wasn't supposed to walk into while some other guys were running interference playing uh, uh, decoys. He snuck in, and he, he stole some grape juice out of a refrigerator. And you think, well, why grape juice? Well, as a prison chaplain, part of the ministry is to provide for the religious accommodation according to the Constitution uh, uh, for religious freedom, religious expression. So Jewish inmates, their accommodation instead of alcohol is grape juice on the inside, for example. So we put grape juice aside so they can use it on the weekends. Well, this guy stole grape juice. They, what's he want grape juice for? Is he hard up for a sweet drink? Well, no, he wants to turn it into what's called hooch, alcohol. He's going to 
mash it together, mix it, let it ferment in his, either in his toilet or his sink. Yes, they make hooch in toilets in prison. And it turns into alcohol, it ferments, and then they can use that either to get drunk themselves, they can, they can gamble, they can pay debts with their alcohol, they can use it for all sorts of nefarious purposes. You mean, if, if, if you want to know, if you've heard a story about something happening in prison, it's probably true. Because inmates have nothing but time to think about how to be productive and creative in negative ways. And, and, and we've talked to staff members, officers, teachers, wardens, chaplains, psychologists. We've spoken and we've said, how productive in society could these inmates be if they would put their time and energy and their talents to use for good instead of for foolishness, instead of for stupidity? And so that's the challenge that we face is we don't just want to, you know, lay down the law and, and punish and write them up and, and, and say, oh, you bad inmate, that's terrible. I can't believe that you would do that. We're trying to bring encouragement. We're trying to bring blessing. And as a chaplain, we have the unique opportunity to bring the gospel to bear. We have the unique opportunity in our discipline to bring truth to bear that nobody else can give, that nobody else can bring. And sometimes when people ask, what do you do? I say, I'm a prison chaplain. And there usually, there's usually one response. Occasionally, I'll get a second. The usual response that I get is, oh, wow, that must be such an amazing ministry. And I'm thinking, if only you knew, because you are clueless. Um, and then another guy recently asked me, a minister who had a little bit more of experience, he says, so what do you do? He says, a prison chap says, oh, I'm sorry, how's that going? Now, he was being sort of sarcastic funny, but he was also being serious because he understands the, the pressures and the stresses that come with ministering in an environment of incarceration on a daily basis. And so when I tell people, to, I sort of try to describe what I do, it's I say that the government pays me to preach about Jesus, and, but it does not pay me to tear down other religions or other faith groups. So I praise God that I'm free to go into the Bible and to preach and teach what Scripture says. I'm free to preach and teach in the American prison system, federal prison system, what God says is the truth. And that's what I try to do. And we can bring that truth to bear and pray. So if you pray, pray for chaplains, pray for prison ministry, that God brings the word to bear in ways that even I couldn't imagine. Because the beautiful thing about the way God works is he, loved to work, he loves to work in ways that are unexpected, ways that we would not think. One of my favorite passages in scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Love that text. Love that message. That in Isaiah 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Uh, to my wife, this is my encouragement to you. Those two verses should be on my headstone when I die if, you, if I precede you in death. But those are some of the two most powerful verses in Scripture. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1 speaks about wisdom, speaks about truth in light of where we live and, and who we are. So we talk in Matthew 25 about waiting, and I'm going to look at foolish waiting, faithful waiting, and fearful waiting. Foolish, faithful, and fearful. The foolish waiting comes in verses 1 through 13, where it's the parable of the ten virgins. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I will just give you the general idea, is that there was a picture here of a wedding party, and the bridegroom is coming. Weddings back then were an all-day affair. They were usually wrapped up with festivities in the evening. And so to be ready for the procession in the evening from the party at the bride's house to the formal ceremony and feast at the groom's house, wedding marchers had to be ready with their torches to light the way, to light the procession. If you didn't have a torch, 
it didn't make any sense to be part of the procession because you needed to have a torch to light the way. And so when the king returns, the question is when the king returns, are you going to be dressed and ready? Are you going to have your torch and your oil ready to go so that when he comes, you have the light? Are we waiting? Are we being productive? Are we being faithful? Are we redeeming the time? Are you ready for what God has called you to do? Inmates like to play games. They'll behave when they're watched, but then they have lookouts when they decide they want to do something, you know, they shouldn't be doing. And then when they get caught, I didn't do that. He did it. It wasn't my fault. It's never your fault, right? But do we own up to our sins? Do we own up to our faults? Do we own up to our wickednesses? And here, the foolish virgins are not willing to own up, but they're wanting to take from the smart ones, the wise brides, uh, the wise virgins who had enough oil. And so the message is to be ready. The message is to be vigilant. The message is to, even though in Matthew 25, it's all about the king not being here, it's about getting ready for when he returns. The message is to not be too wrapped up in the world, in the life of the world, in the ways of the world, in the weekly routines and frustrations and aggravations and difficulties. Are you living with an eye to heaven, with an eye to the cross, with an eye to who Jesus is and what he does? Uh, It's about responsibility in the Christian life. The virgins, basically, in 1 to 13, are an example of spiritual readiness. Because what happens sometimes in parables You can look at one portion of the parable and say, oh, I don't like this. This sounds weird. Why is this happening? But then you're missing the point of the rest of it. So you might look at this parable and say to the the, the wise virgins, why couldn't they share? I mean, come on, the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Why aren't the wise virgins giving to the foolish? Why aren't they helping them out a little bit? Why aren't they giving them some support and some love? And what's happening is that the oil refers to, to their possession of their life in Christ, which makes us ready for his return, which means ultimately that each person's readiness has to be his or her own. You can't borrow someone's spiritual readiness like you can borrow a set of tools or you can borrow a sweater. If you are ready, it's because you are right with God. If that person is not ready, it's because they're not right with God. If you're ready, it's not because they're ready and they're sharing some of that readiness with you. There's no transference of readiness or anything like that. It's you being responsible. It's you being ready. It's you being faithful for when the king returns. You know, think about running a marathon, training for a marathon. You can't borrow somebody else's training in competition. If you're not a runner, you can't say, well, he trained, so I must be good to go. The same way in the Christian life. You can say, well, he's been living a Christian life. I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, ride in on his coattails doesn't work that way. That's what's happening in this parable about the virgins. We don't know how much time we have left. I was speaking to the uh, 7th through 12th graders just a little bit ago for Sunday school, and I didn't say this to them, but, you know, I'll say it now. Don't, don't think that just because you go to church that you're ready or that because you take the sacraments that you're ready or because you've been raised in a Christian home, that you're ready. It's, it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. And it's about the life that you live in response to what Christ has done. And, and we'll dig into some more of that readiness as we move on.
foolish waiting. So don't, don't be like the virgins here. Faithful waiting means faithful working. You're waiting and you're working. It means watchfulness. What's watchfulness? It's ready. It's awareness. It's vigilance. It's, it's looking out for what's coming. It's keeping your head on a swivel, as it were, not even just in the prisons, but in life in general. You're, you're ready for what comes. You're aware of the fact that you have a life to live. God doesn't just tell you to be a Christian in a vacuum. Like, okay, now you've said the prayer. Now you've accepted Jesus, so you're good. I've seen that too many times. People think if they say a prayer, that becomes a works-based form of righteousness. Well, I said a prayer when I was 10, and I didn't follow up upon it any time in the previous 80 years. Now that I'm 90, I'm still good because I said the prayer. That dude did not spend his life getting ready, preparing, being watchful, and waiting, and it's going to come up and bite him when he's not ready for it. To be faithful means to be using the different gifts and the talents that God has given you for his honor and for his glory, for the furtherance of his kingdom. And every servant is given a different amount of talents. Again, we talk about gifts and skills that God has given. We talk about here in verses 14 through 30, the money that is given. Some are given one talent, others two, others five, and uh, we all have the responsibility to be smart with what God gives, to not make excuses. Anyone here ever made an excuse for not doing something right? I know I have. It's big in prison to make excuses. Again, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. Someone's out to get me. There's nothing I can do. I shouldn't be here. Sometimes that may be the case. 99.999% of the time, it's not. They're there because they did wrong. They're there because they got caught. They're there after multiple infractions led them to that place. And I've talked to many inmates, I can't even count on my hands, on my fingers, the, the number of inmates who've told me that their arrest and their conviction was the method that God used to get their attention, to stop them in their tracks. Otherwise, had they continued on, they would have been killed or killing others if not worse. And prison was when they said, wow, God really opened my eyes. So there's God doing the unexpected for us. We expect God to work this way, and then God says, hey, you're going to go to jail, and this is how I'm going to get your attention. You're going to go to prison, and you're going to spend many years there, and I'm going to cause you to grow. I'm going to challenge you behind the walls to grow and to find life and to find support and again, by the grace of God, we're in a place, we're in a nation where we can provide religious support, faith support in the prison system. And when you're in prison, when you're, when you're given perspective, things that used to seem attractive and appealing are not necessarily as appealing as they once were. They start to see their former friends, quote-unquote friends, for who they are, which was not friends at all, but people who were just looking to get something out of them for their own benefit, not for the benefit of themselves. And God often works that way. He takes away things that are comfortable, things that are easy for us uh, to get our attention. Again, I thought I was going to have a pulpit ministry in a church, and everything was going to be hunky-dory, and I, I had my life planned out for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And God says, nope, you don't. I got it, and this is the way you're going to go. Okay, here I go. Thank you, Lord, for being 
patient and gracious with me, and so here we are. So the talents are used. One uses five, one uses two, one uses ten. Uh, and again, with, with whatever God gives, you have to be responsible. You have to be productive, whether God gives you a lot or God gives you a little. If God gives you a dollar, be faithful with that, with that dollar. If God gives you a million dollars, be faithful with the million dollars. It's not rocket science. God's giving you responsibility. He's also giving you some freedom, like he's given these guys here, the, the stewards, freedom to use his gifts as they saw fit. And to adjust the old superhero line, with great freedom comes great responsibility. With great freedom comes great responsibility. And it's not about the amount God gives. It's not about the talent, how much talent he gives or doesn't give. It's about what you do with what you're given. It's about what you do with what you're given. The first two invest, they double the money. The third servant saw too much risk. He made excuses. Oh, God, you didn't really give me a whole lot. You know what? I, I, don't, I, I know that even if I invest what you gave me, you're just going to come and take it anyway. So here it is. I, I'm going to give it back. I just buried it in the ground. I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to take any risk. So here it's yours. He buried his talents to give them back when the master returned. There was no return, and you see how that worked out for him. What he had was taken away. Pastor uh, Dick Lucas, an Anglican minister, says here on this part, he says it's too easy for the church to be more worried about preserving the status quo inside our walls than using our talents outside the church. And that's why I think missions conference like this is so valuable, because it challenges us to step outside of our comfort zones. It challenges us to think about taking risks, like going to Zimbabwe or going to Tokyo or working in Peru or the homeless shelter down the street or the prison. Go and visit, go and volunteer. It, 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 it's really an encouragement for us to think not just about coming and doing the weekly thing, you know, doing your duty. You know, we don't want the Christian life to be about duty, right? We want it to be about delight. We don't want it to be a burden. We want it to be a blessing. And God has that out there for you. And if it's not one of those things, the problem isn't with God. The problem is with you. So get into the Word. Get into the Scriptures. Fill yourself with the Word of God. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. We want to have the mind of Christ. Fill yourself with the Word of God. Fill yourself with food from the Word of God. Find your joy. Find your And pray that God helps you to understand what it is to do his will and what it is to find joy and delight and blessing in doing what he's called you to do as a Christian. Christianity is hard work. Christianity involves risk. And a true Christianity is going to be an inconvenient Christianity. As a believer, there are going to be things that you're going to have to do that are not going to be convenient with your schedule. They're not going to be convenient for your family. They're not going to be convenient for your bedtime or the game that's on TV. And you're going to have to make judgment calls. When you need to make those judgment calls, think about the master you're serving. You have to decide the risks that you'll take. You'll have to decide how you're going to invest the talents that God has given to you. Are you going to be faithful or is God going to come and, and, and take your talents and give them to somebody else who's going to use them wisely, who's going to use them faithfully? Hard questions that we have to think about and ask ourselves.
So finally then is the fearful waiting. Foolish waiting, faithful waiting, and then fearful waiting. Where we're reminded in, in, in these final verses then of our responsibility as Christians to meet the needs of all kinds of people. Not just people who are attractive. Not just people we might like. Not just people who are cookie cutter versions of ourselves. People who may be rough around the edges, people who may be homeless, people who may be addicted to drugs. The church has a real responsibility to minister to needs, not as we perceive them, but as they are. You know, we've heard so much in in recent days, within the last year, about sexual abuse within the church, the Catholic church, the evangelical church. The Southern Baptists recently have come under fire for a lot of issues And it's because the church is not willing to face up to reality. We want to ignore things that aren't appealing or delightful. We want to think that we're better or smarter or less sinful than we are. And we're not willing to attack dead on the reality of sin in our midst. To call people to account when they need to be held accountable. We want to protect. We want to preserve the integrity of the church at the expense of the gospel. And if you try to preserve the integrity of the church at the expense of the gospel, you've become a glorified country club. You're no longer the church because you've given up the gospel. And what point is there in calling yourself a church if you don't have the gospel? Why? Maybe because it looks good. Maybe because it draws people in. Well, you can have that good look and you can draw those people in, but if you don't have the gospel, it's going to be for nothing. It's going to be pointless and you're going to be ruined deceiving yourself, deluding yourself. So the question here is about ministering to those who are in need wherever they are. And we have, to, we have to exercise our spiritual muscles. We have to take pains and labors to be active, to be involved. If you, you know, athletes, this weekend is the NFL Combine, and there's a story yesterday about an athlete with 1.9% body fat. And he is ripped. This guy is shredded. Makes me look like a toothpick. This guy is huge. Six foot three, 220. You know, he's got like a 12 pack if there is such a thing. He looks amazing. But he got there because he worked hard. He got there because he beat up his body to make it look a certain way. We have spiritual muscles to exercise. And if we don't exercise those spiritual muscles, what happens? They waste away, they wither, they become useless. We become, you know, laziness begets laziness. We sit around the church, we come in. You know, I've had people say, well, I'm going to come in. Maybe I'll take in a service one day just for kicks, just because it's fun. Take in a service. You don't take in a service. You worship the living God. You worship the holy God who's created you, who's created all things for his own glory. How silly to call it taking in a service. Minister to the needy. Help those who are in need. What have you done? What are you doing to minister to those in need? Ask yourself that question. Don't become comfortable in your Christianity. Don't think at one point that you've arrived, that there's nothing else that you can do, that everything's okay. You know, that's, that's the lie of the American dream is that, well, I'm, I'm going to retire and just play golf. First of all, if that happened to me, that would be hell on earth because I can't stand golf. I'm not a golfer. Secondly, the lie is that if you retire, then you can just do nothing. You can just play golf. You still have to be productive. You still have to. There is no retirement Christianity. There is no, I mean, there are Christian rest homes, but there's not a Christianity rest home. You fight until your dying breath. You fight until the day the Lord says it's enough or he returns. 
It is risk. It is work. But the Lord has done the heavy lifting. So where the need is, Jesus gives examples. The hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, those needing clothing. Um, I'm going to take probably about five or eight more minutes. Uh, we'll get right to about noon, and then I'll finish. The hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, those who need clothing, the sick, those in prison. Again, this is where people who are not appealing, people who are not attractive, when you think of you know hospital ministry or prison ministry or homeless ministry or soup kitchens, you're kind of thinking about being around people. Again, they're not like you. They're maybe kind of dirty, maybe a lot of germs. I'm a germaphobe. Like uh, Howie Mandel in America's Got Talent, they make big jokes about how he's a germaphobe and does like touch. I'm the same way. I get cracks in my hands in winter because I'm washing my hands all the time, especially in prison. You don't know where inmates' hands have been. You don't know what they've been doing. You don't know what they've touched, and so you're always washing your hands. But this is where God calls us to minister. This is where God calls us to serve, where there is need. So where is there need in your community? Where is there need? Call uh, look around, ask your neighbors, call the town hall. I don't care. Find out where there is need. Find out where there are people who need support. Find out where there are people who need the gospel. And you find out when you go looking for them, you're not going to have to look very far. They're right in your backyard. They're right across your street. There is need everywhere. And if you really want to go looking for need, come and volunteer at the prison. We'd love to have you. The federal system, I'm federal. I'm not state. I'm not local. I can't help you with those. But if you're looking for a federal prison... There's a federal detention center at Philly. I could get you tied in there. If anyone lives close to Philly and wants to get involved there, uh, you know, your musical talents would be so blessed and amazing in the prison system. Inmates love music, and they love musical gifts because half of them can't sing for a lick. But when we get musical guests in and bring the gospel with the words and the message that you have, it's amazing. And, and, and inmates love ministry, but the trick is not to just come and think, well, I came in and I did my duty. I met my quota. We don't want to live as Christians trying to meet a quota. Okay, well, I, I got five, five prisons visited this year. I'm good for the next 10, or I'm good for life. I, I've done enough. Christian ministry is about a life of service. It's not about meeting a quota. And if you look at the Scripture, God is all about ministering to those who are not treated well by the world. The church is condemned for not ministering to the poor, to the orphan, to the homeless, to the widow. James talks about uh, uh, pure religion involves visiting orphans and widows. He condemns favoritism in his book, shown to the wealthy at the expense of the poor. What is, what is beautiful? What is attractive? What is appealing? Christian ministries don't feel like they're successful unless they make headlines. Unless their pastors have Lear jets, I kid you not, Lear jets, or mansions, or 14 car garages. I'm exaggerating, it's probably 10 car garages, but you get the idea. It's about things, it's about materialism, it's about stuff, it's about wealth, it's about what can you promise me in the here and now? And we're missing the forest for the trees at that point. We don't have eyes to heaven. The things that we see here now are temporary, but it's the unseen things that are eternal, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if your faith, and, and Jesus here isn't commending their works as their ground for salvation. Jesus isn't saying, because you visited the sick, because you visited the poor, because you went to prisons, well, then you're going to be saved and good for you. Thanks for not needing me. That's not what he's saying at all. The best way to put it is to say that good works are the fruit of, and not the root of religion. Good works are the fruit and not the root of your salvation. I should say good works come from someone who has been saved. Good works don't save you, 
but they're simply what you do when you're saved. Right? Jesus saves you. You become a Christian. You want to do things that please your master. You want to do things that honor him. You get married. You love your spouse. How do you show love to your spouse? By doing things that please them. Simple, right? Well, for some men, maybe not so simple, but that's the idea. You want to please your spouse. You do things to please them. And so followers of Jesus, you want to honor your Lord. You want to do things that please him because he has loved you, set his love upon you, set his affection and his grace upon you, has changed your heart, has given you a heart of flesh and place of a heart of stone. So now you pursue doing good works, not to be saved, but to show that you are saved. And so Jesus talks about, in Jesus and his ministry, he ministered to physical needs. He ministered to spiritual needs. The church has to, sometimes it's a difficult distinction. We hear about the social gospel. We want to minister to physical needs. We want to minister to spiritual needs. We want to minister to the whole person. We don't want to make our spiritual ministry conditional upon physical. Well, I'm not going to give you a meal unless you let me preach the gospel first. I know you're starving and you're hungry and you're cold and you're thirsty, but I'm going to make you sit through a message for an hour, and then maybe I'll give you a cracker. You know, we don't want to think like that. Minister to the people where they are. Minister to physical needs. Ministering to physical needs opens the doors a lot of times for ministering to spiritual needs. And be ready to put in hard work and not get credit. Again, some ministries and some Christians think that if they don't get headlines for their work, then it's not worth it. And what headlines do you want? What are you saying? Who is your master? Whom do you serve? To whom do you belong? Do you belong to the headlines? Do you belong to the internet? Do you belong to uh, the nations? Or do you belong to Jesus? And are you in it for the glory of self or for the glory of God? Why do you do what you do? Why do you call yourself a Christian? You're here looking at me and I'm preaching to you. Maybe I'm looking at Christians. Maybe I'm looking at fakers. I don't know. God knows. God knows your heart. I don't. And ultimately, you're going to have to answer to him for yourself, just as I will have to answer for my own actions and for my own life. What motivates you? What gets you up in the morning? Does it get the praise of men or the praise of God? Fearful waiting. Whom do you fear? Do you fear God or do you fear men while you wait for his return? And time is about gone, so I'll finish with reminding you to focus not on personal happiness, but on personal holiness. If you focus on personal happiness, you're never going to get there. You're never going to arrive. Because of the reality of the Rockefeller syndrome, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. How much is enough to make you happy? Just a little bit more. And you know what? You're never going to arrive. But if you pursue holiness by the grace of God, for the glory of God, you begin to realize more in your sanctification, in your Christian life, you realize more who God has called you to be. You become more like Jesus. You become more like the one he has created you to be before Adam and Eve wrecked things by sin. And that is our hope. That is our goal to pursue holiness, the holiness of God. So again, think of ministry, think of your Christian life, not so much as deeds to be performed, but more like a life that is to be lived. And the reason there's commendation from Jesus is that people were doing these things not to get a reward, not to get a benefit, but because it was a part of their daily life. They weren't in it for personal praise. They weren't in it for personal glory. They weren't in it to say, I checked off a hospital visit. I checked off a prison visit. It just was part of their life. It was a part of their ministry. 
So I pray that God blesses you and blesses me as well with that mindset of service, of meeting the needs of those around us, of ministry, of humility in quiet places, not in the places where there are headlines, but in the places where there is need, in the places where maybe there aren't reporters following because your goal is not to impress the world, but it is impress the Lord. Amen? To honor Him above all, to bring glory to Him above all, to live for His praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Jesus who went to the cross to suffer and die for our sins, who bled and gave His life so that we can be saved. Thank You, Lord, for the cross and its message of salvation and its message of suffering so that we can be spared from your wrath and judgment so that on the day that Jesus returns we can hear the words well done good and faithful servant because we have lived a life of faith we have lived a life of belief we have lived a life of integrity by your grace by your power by the spirit working in us for his own good pleasure encourage us as brothers and sisters Lord as we go forth from this place today to stand up for Jesus, to stand up for holiness, to pursue your goodness and your grace, to love one another, to meet the needs of the world around us, to bring glory to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.